Amen. Let's go right to the scripture, moving quickly through a few places. John chapter 1, verse 1. I love all this text, but we'll just look at the first verse. Words that are not only bold from John, but I'm convinced for early readers sounded blasphemous. For people that were schooled in the Torah who are so well acquainted with the opening lines of Genesis, John is going to repeat to us sacred words, but he is going to take the liberty to give a very different twist on what everyone has always heard before from Genesis 1. So not just bold, I'm convinced, blasphemous to early readers. In the beginning, conjuring that creation language from Genesis 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And what we read on in John 1 is that John wants to make it expressly clear, not only that Jesus is God, but that Jesus has always been God. Jesus was God from the start. Jesus was God from the very beginning. My friend Brian Zahn, who's a wonderful preacher, has a simple way of putting this that has always stuck with me as kind of a mantra. Brian will say it over and over again. God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. Once we did not know this, but now we do. So simple, but so clear. God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. Once we do not know this, but now we do. And this will become more significant as we go. Because now we know that God is revealed fully through Jesus of Nazareth, that changes how we read the entire rest of the story. It changes everything else we thought we knew about who God is. John 14, verses 5 through 10 Thomas says to Jesus, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know my Father also. Hear those words. From now on, you do not know, but I lost my place, but that's fine. Oh yeah, from now on, you do, not, you do know him and have seen him. And this is where I really want to focus your attention. This is so fascinating, and it's become for me, this just splits my head open sometimes, as simple as it is. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and we will be satisfied. <laughs> Jesus is telling him, right, trying to say, like, look, if you see me, you see the Father. But Philip said, but, but, but when are we going to see the Father? When are you going to reveal the Father to us? Listen to what Jesus says here. Jesus said to him, can you feel the exasperation and maybe even a little hurt in his voice? Have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still do not know me? I really think those are words that Jesus would speak over some, over some of us right now. Have I been with you all this time, and still you don't know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? We can stop right there in those texts. If you have seen me, Philip, you have seen the Father. Please keep that in mind. And then just a couple more verses quickly. Colossians 1, now going to the Apostle Paul. Paul puts it like this. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is all the God that you need. He is fully revealed through Jesus of Nazareth. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. Oh, I love these words. For in him all the fullness of God. 
I can't get beyond that phrase. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In him all the fullness of God dwells in bodily form. I cannot stress this strongly enough. Just one more verse from the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 1.3. He, again being Jesus, is the reflection of God's glory. And I love this language, the exact imprint of God's very being. And he sustains all things through his powerful word. It does not sound like the sharpest thing you've ever heard in a sermon. But I'm convinced everything that we believe about God, about life, about people, everything hinges on what we think about this idea. God is fully revealed in Jesus of Nazareth, the image of the invisible God, the one in whom all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in bodily form. The exact imprint of God's nature is in, entirely revealed through Jesus. There is so much about God and the story of God as given to us through the Old Testament that we have misunderstood before. There is so much that we've seen through a distorted lens, but the God who's revealed in Jesus, it is the full expression of who God is and what God is like. I can't stress that enough. As much as I believe Jesus is God, I think it's so important that we don't miss in terms of who this God is and how he's revealed, that God is like Jesus. God is like Jesus. All scripture, as Paul says, is inspired by the Holy Spirit. All scripture is useful, but it is only the gospels that explicitly, expressly reveal to us what God is like. Only the gospels attempt to answer that question. What is God like? And the resounding answer is Jesus. I don't do this very often, but for my linear people, for note takers, I'm actually gonna give you a handful of statements today, if you can fathom that, that hopefully will help kind of just give us some handles on this whole conversation but the first one being this, which has become so significant for me. You are created in the image of whatever God you behold. You are created in the image of whatever God you behold. Whatever it is you believe about God, however it is that you see God, will shape how you see everything and everyone else. What you believe about God will determine how you look at yourself in the mirror. What you believe about God will determine how you look at your neighbor. What you believe about God will determine what you think about everything. It, 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 I can tell without having a conversation about faith, I can tell so much about what a person most deeply believes based on how they see the rest of the world. It, it, it's reciprocal in that way because whatever God we see, whatever God we behold, we will be shaped in the image of that God, even if it's a lowercase g, God. It shapes everything. And that for me is what's so heartbroken. I referred in that prayer to the open wound in the heart of God. I so believe that. That, there is, that God is so deeply grieved at how many of his own sons and daughters still don't see him rightly, still don't perceive him for who he really is, as has been revealed in Christ Jesus. I, I think often about, um, for me, my quintessential illustration of this, and I, I guess I should give a spoiler alert, but I always feel like I can give away the endings of like really old movies, right? If there's a certain, there's like a statute of limitations on these things. So... Work with me here. Do, do you remember the M. Night Shyamalan film, The Sixth Sense? Who remembers that movie? Did you see that movie, right? Ba back when M. Night Shyamalan was making great movies consistently? <laughs> this great, great, great suspense. If you have not seen it, here's the basic conceit, right? You have this 10-year-old boy who's seeing visions of dead people. I see dead people. That's the classic line from the movie. 
Everywhere he goes, he's seeing these uh, people who are recently departed and in these kind of gruesome ways, and it's freaking out. So he goes to see Bruce Willis as the child psychologist. Would you send your child to see Bruce Willis as his therapist? I'm just raising the question. He goes, he's seeing Bruce Willis for help. And so the whole movie, you know, he's trying to convince his therapist that he really sees these things. And Bruce Willis is trying to figure out what's really going on and what, what's happening. So the big reveal at the end of the movie, right, is that all along, Bruce Willis, the therapist, he's dead. And that changes everything. So then you start thinking about different scenes throughout the movie that didn't seem significant before. And all of a sudden, they seem very significant. You see them in a whole different way. Uh, uh, other things that maybe at, before you thought were important don't seem so important now. Because this end, this revealing that you get at the end of the film changes how you see everything that happened before. It's supposed to. And one of the things that I think makes that movie great is that if you go back and watch it the second time, it really does hold up, right? Like everything changes. So, so it's not, some movies cheat like that, by the way. I hate a mystery thriller that does that. You know, that kind of throws some real random thing at the end. Oh, gotcha, surprise. But there's no way anyone could have ever figured that out before and just kind of feels arbitrary. One of the things that makes The Sixth Sense a good thriller is that it holds up. When you watch it again from this perspective, you really do see everything differently. You're supposed to. I'm convinced this is true for how we read Scripture. If Jesus not only is God, but has been God from the beginning. In the, word, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. If God has always been Jesus, it has to change everything about how I read the Old Testament. I love, sometimes I'm, I think I really want to write a long project about this that would be accessible. I love how New Testament writers talk about the Old Testament. Because they violate, for one, they violate every rule that, especially in 20th century sort of fundamentalist hermeneutics, all the rules that we had about context, they violate them all. I mean, yes, of course, um, Christians believe that these messianic prophecies in places like Isaiah and, uh, and in the Psalms are revealed in Jesus. But when Paul in particular starts talking about the Old Testament, he is drunk on Jesus. He sees Jesus everywhere. He can't talk about a word of the Old Testament and not see Jesus in it. Even when it's not an explicit messianic prophecy, he's now reading everything through the filter of Jesus, whether that kind of works in context or not. Part of what's hit me about this, for one, I think for people like Paul, who's Hebrew of Hebrews, he's so schooled in the language of the Old Testament. really is his mother tongue. It just comes so natural to speak in those images and metaphors. But beyond that, I, what, I, what I really hear when I read the epistles now is that these are people who just, they were just punch drunk in love with Jesus. You know what happens when, when you fall in love, right? When someone falls in love, all of a sudden, Everything in life, everything in the world is about that other person. You can go out and you see the moon on a beautiful, starless, you know, kind of night, but the moon just kind of is, is gleaming out, and it's all about that person. Everything is about that person. Everything in the world, it's like it's written in the cosmos itself. Part of what you feel through these, these early writers is that they're just that in love with Jesus. So now they're seeing Jesus everywhere in all kinds of things. It means that they're reinterpreting old stories through a radically different perspective, and they're supposed to, because what was revealed to us in the end changes how we understand the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This really does change everything. And yet what I find often happens is that many of us still have this terrible dichotomy to where instead of believing that Jesus reveals the Father, 
well, I'll say it like, I don't think I said it this way in the first service. A lot of people have been given doctrine that tells them essentially that Jesus appeases the Father. Jesus does not appease the Father. Jesus reveals the Father. Two very different things. Jesus comes to reveal who the Father has been all along. People told me after the first service, and I hear this all the time, that they will say that when they're struggling, when they're down, when they feel like they need help, they'll pray to Jesus because they feel like, well, I can talk to Jesus. Jesus understands what it's like to be me. Jesus understands what it's like to be him, and I can talk to Jesus. But they still have real issues in talking to God the Father. This is true even for people, now especially true, of course, understandably for people who had issues with their own dad. If, you know, we, we, a lot of people have daddy issues in the sense that because of a poor relationship with an earthly father, they struggle with how to relate to their heavenly father. But I'm convinced in the church, by and large, we all have daddy issues on some level when it comes to God the Father because we'll still see him as the distant one. We'll still see him as the judgmental one. We'll see him as the one who's really all about punishment. Jesus, thankfully, is the nice one who loves us, right? And we're still convinced, we're not yet convinced that God is really like Jesus. One of my favorite quotes, and I go to it all the time, God is Christ-like, and in him is no unchristlikeness at all. I love that. God is Christ-like, and in him is no unchristlikeness at all. Jesus does not come to appease the Father. Jesus does not come to appease the Father's anger. Jesus comes to reveal who God has been all along. So again, for my note takers, my second little statement here, is it, it's, I know it must be remarkable to hear me be linear for once, but this for me is, it just, again, has been life-changing. Jesus did not come to change God's mind about you, but to change your mind about God. Jesus did not come to change God's mind about you. Jesus came to change your mind about God. God already made up his mind about you. Jesus is referred to as the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundations of the world. God already decided how extravagantly and how perfectly he loved you. As David says in Psalm 139, even before I was knitted together in my mother's womb, before you were created, before you were formed, God has always loved you. He decided what he thinks about you a long time ago. So God didn't need Jesus to come and to change his mind about how he feels about you. What Jesus comes to do is to change our minds about how we think about God and how we see God. Do you see how different that is? Often, I don't have time to do all of this and just uh, kind of do justice to all this, but that's another sermon for another time. But I think especially where this gets kind of twisted is in really unhealthy kind of atonement theology. And I believe in atonement, but in a different way than some people do. If some people will teach this in the sense that like, okay, so I want to see who's kind of heard this narrative before. God the Father, once again, is the really, really angry one, and he's got to take the anger out on somebody, so thank God for Jesus, who steps in. It can make Jesus sound like a battered wife who's like absorbing the blow of a, of a drunken lover. It's really, really dis disturbing if you think about it. But, and some of that comes from misinterpreting Paul, again, another sermon for another time. But what I can tell you that I feel very strongly about is this. There is no way, once again, that Jesus is the one who comes to appease the Father. He comes to reveal the Father. We get all these disturbing ideas, like um, I've heard it taught so many times, see if you've heard this before, that because of our sin, because we are sinful people, God can't even look at you. 
unless you're kind of hiding behind Jesus. Anybody ever heard this before? God cannot even look at you in your sin unless you're hiding behind Jesus. That's a sweet thought. <laughs> Luther doesn't help us here. Luther uses wonderful language about how like we are snow-covered dung. Isn't that a lovely description? Snow-covered dung. Becomes this idea that because God, because God is so disgusted by the filth of human sin, he cannot even look at us in our sinful condition. This essentially comes from taking one verse in the Psalms out of context. I can debunk this with a single stroke. When Jesus is acting and teaching and preaching and moving in the earth, the central scandal of the ministry of Jesus is that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners. Eyeball to eyeball, face to face. This is why people are scandalized by Jesus all the time. Now, I'm really not trying to insult your intelligence, but work with me, I think this is important that we think this through. As Christians, who do we believe that Jesus is? God, we believe that Jesus is God. So when Jesus is eating and drinking face to face with folks who are sinful and defiled, who is doing that? God. So using our most basic powers of deduction, <laughs> is it true that God cannot look upon sinful people in their sinful condition? No. How do we know this is true? Because of Jesus. Because Jesus fully reveals who God is. Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is who God has been all along. God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. Once we did not know this, now we do. It is not true that God cannot look at you in your sin if not for Jesus. That is not the case. And while I believe, again, another sermon for another time, the cross is absolutely necessary for our salvation. The death and resurrection of Jesus accomplishes so much. I could talk about that for years and not exhaust all the riches of it. But what I don't believe at this point in my life is that God the Father is the accountant, is the bookkeeper, who really wanted to forgive people, but there were too many legal loopholes. So he needed Jesus to die because, so he could forgive people because otherwise he could not. Once again, single stroke. God forgives people of sin in the Old Testament. And hello, before Jesus is crucified, Jesus, he gets in trouble for this too, Jesus forgives sins. That's what people say. Who is this, who is this man to forgive sins? So whatever it is that's going on with all that, it cannot be that God needed Jesus to work through the legal loopholes so that he could finally forgive people because otherwise I just don't think I can because I gotta get the book straight. That's not who God the Father is. But people think that way. God the Father is the accountant. Jesus is the one who likes me and loves me. No wonder then, we, it makes our own walk with God so schizophrenic because we have a schizophrenic image of him. Some days he's a punitive ogre. Some days he looks like Jesus and he's compassionate and he loves us where we are. It, it just kind of depends on how you're feeling. That's dangerous, isn't it? From one day to the next, depending on how I feel, the God that I see can look entirely different. That, that's a scary way to live. I, 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 need to, I need to keep going. So my next little statement. Jesus came to save us from sin, the devil, and ourselves. There is so much we need to be saved from. There is so much I need to be saved from. There is so much I'm being saved from now. I'm in an ongoing process of being saved, and so are you. We are, we, we are constantly, we are saved, we're being saved. There's so much that we need. Jesus comes to save us from sin, the devil, and ourselves. He does not come to save us from God. Can't stress that enough. Jesus comes to save us from sin, the devil, and ourselves. He does not come to save us from God. 
God is not the one you need saving from. God has never been the one that you need saving from. I need to be saved from my own self-destructive choices. I need to be saved from, from, from so much in the world that enslaves me, that enslaves my heart. God is not the one you need saving from. No wonder, again, our view of God becomes so fundamentally unhealthy if we think the primary problem in the story of Scripture is a problem that we have with God. The main problem that you have is yourself. The main problem I have is myself. I have plenty to need to be saved from. I don't mean to, this is going to sound silly, to quote the great prophet Jay-Z, <laughs> I have 99 problems, but the Heavenly Father ain't one. I don't even know that works. I mean, the idea works. 99 problems, but God the Father is not one. He's not. God the Father is not my problem. The Father has always loved me. How do I know the Father has always loved me? Because of Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's how we know. Jesus came to save us from sin, the devil, and ourselves, but not from God. And I want to really lean in on this, on this one. I know I've said it, but I need to put some weight down on it. God has always been like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. This is where I really find myself so often wanting to help Christians, and again, having to remind myself and how we read the, the Old Testament narrative in particular. Because, of course, there are things within those texts that trouble us. There are those texts of terror, some would call them. Um, and we really struggle with how to reconcile this image of God, that image of God. I think that's how people come up with that dualistic understanding of the Father and the Son, where it often it kind of is pitting the Father against the Son. Um, or the way I'll hear it sometimes, it's, like, it's kind of like a good cop, bad cop kind of relationship, right? That's, that's the way the relationship is with Jesus. You all know the cop shows when they do like the good cop, bad cop thing is? So the good cop comes in and says, now, I want to help you. I want to offer you a deal I wanna, if you'll work with me. But if I let Frank in here, he's, that guy's an animal. You do not want Frank to get a hold of you, right? And it becomes like that. Like Jesus is the one like, now, look, I, I love you and I died for you, but you don't want to get alone with the Father. Like he will be. And they're doing this little dance back and forth. They've got this little routine worked out, you know, to make sure you don't sin, you know, kind of back and forth between, so it becomes this yin and yang, and people, that's how people, I think, often use the Old Testament, and again, have the schizophrenic God. We do have to, like the sixth sense, what we know to be true about God being fully revealed in Jesus of Nazareth now changes how we read every text. And while I can't do this exhaustively, I want to give you just a few examples. In the Old Testament, I believe the story of the, this Christ-like God emerges actually fairly early. We get signs from the very beginning, all the way back in Genesis, of who God is. The, but as it works in the Hebrew tradition, this comes before us in a dialectical way. There's, there's kind of a dialogue between these texts. There is tension between the texts that I don't think, incidentally, we should always prematurely resolve. So, you know, we do have images where there's tension. But there is a story that consistently moves forward if we're paying attention to it. We get these glimpses. So one of my favorite examples of this uh, is from Exodus 34. This is where God introduces himself to Moses. So this is a landmark text in the Old Testament when God reveals himself for the first time to Moses. And he says, the Lord passed before him and he proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, yes, slow to anger, thank you, Jesus, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We all love that, right? Keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's wonderful. This is the God that we know through Jesus. Oh, yes, yet by no means clearing the guilty, 
but visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Ow, right? We like the idea of a God who forgives through the generations, but the idea of a God who not only will punish for sin, but will punish generation after generation after generation, that, that's unsettling. I'm sure it was unsettling for the early readers. But again, even within the Hebrew narrative, before we even get to Jesus, there are all these tensions They're all that the kind of drive the story forward. So skipping all the way to the book of Jonah, my favorite prophet, if you haven't been to Sunday school in a while, Jonah is the one who God calls to go to Nineveh. And he hates the Ninevites. It's, it, some of it's kind of racism, some of it's ethnic, some of it is that um, the Ninevites had a different religion and they really had done offensive things to Jews, harmful things to Jews. So Jonah is so upset that God would send him to proclaim God's goodness to these people that he despises. So in Jonah 4, beginning with verse 1, this was very displeasing to Jonah. He's mad about this whole idea, and he became angry. So verse 2, he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said while I was still in my own country? That is why I fled to Tarshish to the beginning. And note here that Jonah, verse by verse, verbatim, quotes Exodus 34. He quotes this word for word. I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. All that so far has been word for word. And right where the quote should go to, but then also punishing people for their sins and visiting sins from one generation to the next to the next, and ready to relent from punishing and now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. He is fairly upset about this whole idea. I love it when the truth about who God is is revealed through people who are reluctant. You know, Chris, again, what's great about this for Jonah is that this is not good news to him. <laughs> it's not good that the Lord is gracious. He says this by way of accusation. I always knew deep down that you were more about the mercy than the punishment. I was always suspicious that this is where the weight lands, is on the story of your mercy. I was afraid you weren't going to follow through on the other. It's like the reverse charismatic thing. Let me remind you of your word. Let me remind you of your promises. You said you'd kill those people. You said you would wipe out the sinners down through the generations. The, the, the story is moving forward. The revelation is moving forward before Jesus even gets here. But when Jesus does come, and I, this, is, this is really one of my favorites, because, see, the thing that happens is, Again, being so intrigued about how New Testament writers use the Old Testament and explicitly how Jesus uses the Old Testament. The accusation about people who do grace preaching is always that, you know, grace preachers leave stuff out. That's the Grace preachers leave stuff out. Kind of like the kind of thing we had there with Jonah. Grace preachers just leave stuff out. The God who's revealed in Jesus, to be clear, he does talk about judgment. I do believe in judgment. I don't believe that God will drag people kicking and screaming into some kind of a bliss that they do not choose. So judgment is real, but I think we so often misunderstand the nature of judgment in the teachings of Jesus. For one, again, look, only a footnote for now, but for one, the way Jesus uses judgment language is so fascinating to me. Because he never uses it to threaten the tax collectors and, prost and prostitutes or the woman at the well, that's not how he uses it, to like give altar calls. Jesus uses judgment language most often to contradict the scribes and Pharisees who claim they know who's out as a way of saying, oh, you think you're out. He turns the tables on them. Very interesting how Jesus uses judgment language. But explicitly here, I want to look at two texts, one Old Testament and New Testament. Isaiah 61, 
is a text that has both promise and beauty, but also uh, it has an edge to it. There's wrath to this. Isaiah 61, beginning with verse one. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And watch this, this is all the same phrase. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. So that is the promise. Spirit of the Lord will come upon somebody sometime, somewhere, who's gonna proclaim the gospel to the poor, he's gonna preach, and the, the, those who are oppressed and bound up are gonna be set free, this beautiful promise. So going to Luke chapter four, this is where Jesus will read this text, very, very strategically placed in Luke's gospel. Luke four, beginning with verse 16, when Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. And so he begins to read, from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah that was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Now listen to this. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Anybody sense anything missing here? And he rolled up the scroll gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. The trouble with grace preachers is that they're always leaving stuff out. Can you even imagine the little old ladies who tapped Jesus on the shoulder when this was over? What about the day of vengeance, preacher? That's not the whole text. I know they don't have verse numbers in Hebrew or Greek, but note that in Isaiah, this is all the same phrase, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. And yet after Jesus reads the part about proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, he rolls up the scroll and sits down. This, my friends, is the ancient Middle Eastern version of the mic drop is what's happening right here. <laughs> rolls up the scroll sits it down, and before the part about the day of vengeance, Jesus closes the book. He closes the book. Because the definitive picture of the God who's revealed to us in Jesus is not a God who's angry, punitive, out to kill us and get us, but a God who is proclaiming forgiveness, peace, grace. The God who, who the, the most pressing image of this God we get in all the Bible is the one that we see when Jesus is on the cross. And even while he's bleeding his last, he's still saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. That is the God that's revealed to us in Christ Jesus. Everything we thought we understood about the story before, we have to read differently now in light of how God has been revealed to us in Jesus. Track it with me so far? I gotta give you one more thing because this also for me has just been huge. I could talk about the other forever. Because I do think so often we struggle, especially when we are dealing with sin, especially when we are dealing with addiction, especially when we are dealing with our brokenness. How, how We all struggle with that sense of unworthiness. How do I connect with a God who is holy and righteous and pure? All of those things. Let's bring in my last statement. Sin does not change how God sees you. Sin changes how you see God. 
Sin does not change how God sees you. Sin changes how you see God. You are not big enough, strong enough, powerful enough, bad enough that you can do something that will somehow subvert the way God looks at you. The one who's loved you since before you were created has once again already made up his mind about you. So you're not strong enough to change God's mind about you. You're not strong enough to change God's love for you. But what makes sin so toxic, what makes it so deadly, is not that it changes how God sees us. It alters how we see God. And that's where sin so profoundly separates us from any kind of awareness of God's presence. I saw this in the story of the prodigal son, and I've never been able to go back on this. How the prodigal, and you know the story well, after he has squandered his father's inheritance early on dissolute living, according to his brother, on prostitutes and parties, after all of this, he finds himself working in a hog pen, the most unclean place, lowest place a Jew could be. And while he's in that place, he begins to remember his father, and he begins to think about his father's house. It is in the hog pen that he says to himself, even the slaves, even the hired hands at my father's ranch have a better life than this. And from that place, here's what he imagines about his father. Maybe, maybe, just maybe, best case scenario, if I go back and I beg and plead, maybe he will let me come back as a hired hand. That's how he sees the father from the hog pen. And that's always how we see God from the place of our sin because sin distorts our vision of God. Sin turns the God of goodness and grace in our mind's eye, in Herbert McCabe's phrase, to a punitive ogre. The God who only wants to bless us, all of a sudden from my place of sin and unworthiness, I can't come near him, he wants to kill me. Now, of course, we all know where that story lands is that when the prodigal comes home, it's not true that his father, if he negotiates, will let him be a hired hand. The father runs to him, embraces him, puts the ring on his finger, kills the, cat, the fatted calf. There's a party. There's a, he embraces his son. But the point there for me that's so profound, it wasn't that the sin of the prodigal changed how his father saw him or thought about him. It changed how the son saw his father. So from the place of my sin then, I, I, I distort the image of God. This is so tragic to me because what I find that happens for so many of us is in the moments in our lives where we need the grace of God the most, where we most need to be able to say to Jesus, and can I remind you not just Jesus, to your good, good Father who has always loved you, I need your help, I need your mercy, I need your grace. In the moments where we need him the most, we hold him farthest from us because we can't see him right in those moments. That's what sin does, is it changes. Can I make a confession to you that honestly is embarrassing to me? But I'm, I don't think I'm exaggerating this. If anything, I might be downplaying it. I promise you that 80 to 85% of my prayer life for my entire life has been me pleading for forgiveness. Because I was so convinced, especially when you have that sense, you know, that like, man, what if I slip up, say a bad word, think a bad thought, whatever, Jesus comes back, or I'm in a car wreck, then I'm done. So I got this habit when I was very early of internally constantly praying prayers for forgiveness. Even now, I'll catch my, I'm, I am kind of crazy in a lot of ways. I'll catch my lips moving, not almost unconsciously, asking God for forgiveness repeatedly just to make sure. 
Nothing wrong with praying for forgiveness, but surely there's something distorted. You know, because I got that right from the sense that, well, God can't even look upon me in my sin, so I can't talk about anything else unless I've made sure I've covered all the bases. So it all became like this ritualistic, just over and over again, trying to make sure. I don't know about you, that has not been super fruitful for me. That's not been real helpful. I can't even talk to God about the things that are going on in my guts. I can't even talk to God about what's really happening in here because there's still that sense that if he saw me in this, that he would reject me, that he would look away because I still to this moment find myself returning to those old default settings of seeing a God that does not look like Jesus. This is why, and I've got to close, this is why we so desperately need the fresh revelation of who, of who God is, to really believe that he is the image of the invisible God, to really believe that when we have seen Jesus, we've seen the Father, and he's a good, good Father, not an accountant who's sitting around constantly in knots trying to get the books right, but thank God we've got lovely Jesus who is it that way. Jesus comes to reveal who God has been all along, who God has always been. He comes to reveal the heart of the Father to you. Let me pray for you before we come to the table. Lord, this is I'm just aware this is this is a big message. And you know so intimately and you know so well just how much just how off we are, how through the distortion of our sin, how over and over again we return to old ideas about you, how we accept a God who is less than Jesus. God, I just pray for your sons and daughters right now, knowing, Lord, that, there, that this, this message, this whole idea has such vast implications for us. Lord, could you heal our eyes to be able to see you for who you really are? I want to pray specifically for people who still just struggle so deeply with the idea that you, Father God, could love them where they are, that you, Father God, could have such affection for them, still feeling so unworthy, still holding you at a distance in the places where we really most need you to draw close. God, would you heal their vision now? Would you change us? Would you reveal yourself to us, Lord? Would you give us a revelation of who you really are, of who you've always been, and who you always will be to us, Lord? Sin has ravaged our eyes. Heal us by your grace to be able to see you for who you really are, that we would be created in the image, that we would be formed and shaped of the image of the God who is Jesus instead of any of these lesser gods. And I pray that then from how we see you, Lord, that that will translate into how we will see ourselves and our neighbor, how we'll see the world differently. God, that everything would start from this place, from the way that you heal our eyes from the way you change our perspective. We ask it in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's come and make. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services at 5 p.m. on Saturday, 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. on Sundays. And if you would like more information on who we are and what we're about here at Sanctuary or to give online, please visit our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com or you can download our mobile app from the App Store or Google Play. We hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.